Thanks for listening to the Standing Together Ministry Podcast. Our desire is to create a multi-generational conversation in the independent Baptist movement while standing together for truth. The following is a teaching portion from the first ever Standing Together Ministry Summit in September of 2018. We would love to see you at the next summit on April 1st and 2nd at Franklin Road Baptist Church of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can learn more and register at stsummit.com. That's stsummit.com. Now, prepare to grow as you listen to this episode of the Standing Together Ministry Podcast. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for being here today as well. It's a privilege for me to be here in this meeting, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. I was able to fly out with my wife, uh, who's here uh, in the town as well, and uh, she goes, now, I see some of these guys who are speaking, and it looks like they've got a lot of the older generation speaking. Uh, which generation are you you in? And uh, I said, well, I'm closer to 50 than I am to 40, so I think I'm in the other generation now. And I keep my hair cut short so that I don't have any gray, but uh, the picture is starting to deceive me a little bit. And it's great to be here with you, and I so appreciate uh, what this church is sponsoring and what these moderators have put together, and appreciate all the work that has gone into it. And I want to just tell you a little bit about uh, who I am, just so you know who you're listening to. Uh, I grew up in Georgia. My dad's a pastor. My granddad was a pastor. He's in heaven now. My great-granddad was a pastor as well. Many of my uncles were preachers. Uh, none of my aunts were preachers, but a lot of my uncles were. Uh, and so I've grown, up around, uh, I've grown up around the ministry and a lot of country-type churches. Uh, and then I went to Bible college and met my wife there. Worked for my dad for about a year in Georgia. I was a children's pastor and bus director and just had a blast, bivocational. And then in 1995, Pastor Paul Chapel asked if we would come out and uh, see about if God was moving us to work with him and if God was opening that door. And so uh, in 1995, we moved out there, and we are now in our 24th year of ministry there in California. And uh, just excited what God has allowed us to be a part of and grateful for the heritage that we have. And I want to invite you to take your Bible, sort of a launching spot. Let's go to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. And this isn't so much a Bible lesson in the sense that we're going to walk through the text as much as a lesson about the Bible. But I still want to start with uh, just some basic admonition from the Apostle Paul helping us understand uh, the right position, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 15, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. A great testimony for Timothy to have. I'm grateful to have that testimony as well, that from a child I was taught the scriptures. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not uh, all scripture that is inspired is profitable so that we get to make a determination, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore it is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, as a man of God may be perfect, Really furnished or totally equipped. He has everything he needs to do the work God has called him to do. Without the Word of God, we have no message. Without the Word of God, we have no ministry. Without the Word of God, we have impotent pulpits. And so we need to have the Word of God, and we need to have it with conviction. And so this is the day to be questioning, where is God's Word? Do we still have it? Rather, it's the time to strengthen the things that remain. And so that's sort of the spirit I'm coming with today. 
I'm not here trying to convince you to use the King James. That's, I, I'm, I'm here to more help you as your people ask you questions and maybe some questions you've been asked to maybe help strengthen some of the positions that many of you have already. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul mentions this truth about inspiration. Most people aren't going to argue about inspiration. They, they, they understand that in the originals, they were inspired by God. We know there's a process involved. God took holy men of God. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And we know there was a process involved that led to a product. The Holy Spirit used holy men, and what they gave us was the Holy Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And as a result of that, we have an authoritative book that's credible, that's been validated, that has stood the test of time. It's a practical truth that we get to enjoy every week when we open up the Word of God and preach and teach from it. And I want to say by way of introduction that concerning the issue of preservation, it's not just an academic question to me. It isn't just uh, if we can stack up enough Bible verses and have more Bible verses than somebody else, we win. It's not an academic exercise to me only. It starts with a premise that God has promised. There's a divine promise involved here. And in the Bible, we, we see how God has preserved his word. We see it specifically in the Old Testament, how God instructed priests, how God instructed kings, and God instructed fathers to all make copies. The priests representing the religious system, they made copies. The kings representing the government, they made their copies from the priest copy. Uh, the priests, the kings, the fathers made copies on their gates and on their doors. And so in all of these avenues, God was preserving his word. The New Testament uh, contrary, was also copied, preserved. It was entrusted to the church. And the church had an explicit part of fulfilling the Great Commission and preserving the Scriptures. We often think about the Great Commission as winning people to Christ. That's part of it. It's a big part of it. But it also says that we're to baptize them. That's important. But it also says teaching them to observe all things which I've commanded you. Implicit in that, if we're to teach people what God has commanded is we have to have the Word of God that shows what God has commanded. This is why in the 150s, the 140s or so, the church in Antioch began translating the scriptures. And so we have an old Syriac version, and we have an old Italic version, and we have these Bibles in that early history of the church. Why? Because as the Great Commission was sending out missionaries, they wanted to have the Word of God to teach people to observe all things that had been commanded. And the great question today isn't so much, has God inspired his work? We know that. And the great question isn't, has God promised to preserve his word? The question sometimes people struggle with today is not so much inspiration or preservation, but translation. Can I trust these words in English? This morning in my devotion time, I did not read Hebrew. <laughs> uh, I did not open it up. Uh, I, I had Hebrew when I was in school, but uh, I learned enough to pass the test, and now it's gone. It's, it's gone the way of all flesh. It's, it's gone. And so I, I, didn't, I didn't read uh, my, my Bible this morning in Hebrew. I didn't have my devotions this morning in, in Greek. I, I didn't open up a, a TR or a Texas Receptus and spend time with the Lord. And I actually read my Bible this morning in English. It was a great idea, too. I'm glad the Word of God's in English. It, it's, uh, it's really, really helpful. And so can we find God's Word today in English? Can we trust the words of God in English? Can the common man have God's Word in English? When I was growing up, I didn't know different Bible translations existed. My aunt and uncle were faithful in another church, and uh, we were left with them over the weekend. My parents were going out of town, and so they were babysitting us, and they took us to church with them. So uh, I ran out the door. I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and, and uh, I left my Bible. I didn't, I didn't have my Bible. 
But my aunt said, that's okay. We won't go back in and get it. We have Bibles in the pews. I said, okay, good. So I got in the pews, big church, uh, probably 800 people or so, very uh, dignified type of a setting, uh, totally different from what I had grown up in, totally different. And I, I put the Bible up from the, the, the back of the pew there, and I'm, I'm trying to follow along with the preacher. And, and what I'm reading and what he's reading isn't the same. And I remember thinking as a 10-year-old boy, I said, how did this guy who can't read too well get to pastor this church that's so big? <laughs> And, and it was an honest question. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to be, uh, you know, a brat about the thing. I just, I really, I'm reading the Bible. He's speaking, and we're not reading the same thing. And so I went to my aunt afterwards. I said, hey, I said, how'd you enjoy service? I said, really good. It was good. So what'd you think? I said, well, I, I do have one question. Does it not bother anybody in the church that your pastor can't read? <laughs> and I wasn't being smart about it. I just, it was an honest question from a 10-year-old, and I, I, and, my, and I already had the solution. I said, because she, I could probably ask one of the assistant pastors to read the text for him. And, and she, was, she just looked at him like, Mike, what are you talking about? I said, well, I tried to follow along with him in the Bible today, and, and he just missed, and he just slaughtered it. He just wasn't reading it right, and I just, I just, I felt bad for him. And then she said, well, which Bible did you use? And I, and I said, it was the white one. And she said, oh, that's our Sunday night Bible. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And the church used two different translations. That was the first time I ever knew another translation existed. And my perspective was the guy just didn't know how to read. And so I didn't grow up hearing a lot of preaching on King James, King James, King James. I just, I just didn't know there was anything else. That's, my pers- that's where I'm coming from. Uh, and so today, some people are King James preferred. Uh, some people are King James by conviction. Uh, some people arrive at the same translation I, I, I stand behind, and they get there a different way. So we're all different kinds of people use the Bible that I use today. But I want you to know my view of preservation and translation before I start, because for some people, I, maybe I am too strong, and for some, I'm not strong enough. I don't know that you can make everybody happy, but I think in transparency, you should at least know where I'm coming from. Okay, so here's how I sum up my view. Any view of preservation must be logically coherent to work before 1611. So my position, I don't believe preservation started in 1611. I believe preservation started the moment that the originals were penned. I don't believe that there was this long gap and all of a sudden God said, you know, we probably should preserve that. Okay, it has to work and uh, it has to work prior to that. And my view also demands that it has to work in other languages as well. Okay, uh, I live in a, in a uh, bilingual community, and so uh, that has strengthened the way I've argued my, my position because sometimes they didn't work across that language barrier, and so it's caused me to try to reevaluate some of the positions I assumed. So, and my second premise, if you will, is the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And as a result, the church has had access to God's word since the beginning. So in my view, what you should understand is I link the perpetuity of the church to the preservation of scriptures, that God has committed to the church the word of God, and if the church will never be destroyed and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then when I follow the history of those churches, I can follow the history of the Bible. So that's where I'm coming from. Thirdly, I believe God's words were pure the moment he inspired them, and they didn't need to be purified later. (laughs) Uh, I don't believe David had to write Psalm 12 seven times before he got it right. Okay, so that's sort of where I'm coming from, all right? I don't look for a seventh translation in every language to make sure now I've got the right one. I, I don't go after having the right numbers, sevens and number for perfection, so let's, you know, I just that's not where I'm coming from. 
Fourthly, the validity of a translation, and this is humanly speaking, this is the human perspective because it's God's word written through human instruments. So humanly speaking, the validity of a translation is tied to the text in which it was taken and to the technique in which it was conducted. So I'm looking at the textual background and I'm also looking at the technique that it was used. And then I would say, finally, I believe in the doctrine of preservation. The reason I call it a doctrine is because I believe the Bible teaches it. And if the Bible teaches it, then it's a doctrine. So that's where I'm coming from. Uh, why do I believe that God has preserved his word? Well, I believe it because of the promises of God. I believe the promises of God demand it. Um, Psalm 89, verse number 34, God gives us a promise. Isaiah 40, verse number 8, God gives us a promise. I believe Psalm 12, 6, and 7, when properly understood in its context, gives us a promise that God would preserve his word. And so we have many, many more, but I start with the fact that God said it. And if God said it, then, then it's settled for me. I, I don't have to second guess God. If God makes a promise, then God keeps his promises. You ever had a promise broken to you? I use this illustration uh, so much now. My mom has tried to destroy this illustration uh, because, you know, it, it, she, just, she wants me to use another illustration. But when I was a kid, probably 11, 12 years old, I, I asked that famous question that kids ask, can we stop by Dairy Queen and get some ice cream? Uh, can we do that? And here was the answer I got, not now. Well, not now to me meant not right at this moment, but soon. And that was 40 years ago. Okay, so I'm still, I'm still waiting for that ice cream. So to me, that, that's, a, that's a broken promise. My mom's tried to take me to Dairy Queen's and says, nope, you're not ruining my illustration. Uh, I have a broken promise, and I'm going to hold on to it till I die. All right. So God's promises. I believe God has promised it, and that settles it. Number two, I believe the doctrine of preservation is also based on God's purposes. Proverbs 29, verse 18 said that where there is no vision, the people perish. He's not talking here about can you see. You know, right now I don't have very good vision. You all look the same right now. Okay, now my vision changed. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is explained in the next part of the verse. But happy is he that keepeth the law. Okay, so, so what we could summarize is when there is no word of God, people perish. But I know God's purpose. He says in 2 Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish. So God's purpose, if he, if they don't have the word of God, they perish, and he doesn't want anyone to perish, then what God must do based on his purpose is make sure man has access to the word of God. So I look at God's purposes. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So I think about this from a standpoint, God's purposes and God's promises. And then I look at it through history, and I see that God's providence demonstrates it. I look through history, and I see a preserved text, and I see Bible-believing churches in multiple languages using translations that have come from the same source. Now, uh, let me start with just some practical reasons. This, this title isn't uh, proved to me that preservation is a doctrine, so I'm not going that route. The, the, the issue is why should we still use this particular translation? So I start with some observations. Do you know that the Old Testament and New Testament weren't designed to be read only by society's elite? In fact, the Bible says that the common people heard Jesus gladly. In the Bible, preservation is demonstrated as extended even through the translations. I, I love looking at uh, how the Old Testament is, is, is copied and quoted in the New Testament. So here we have a statement written in Hebrew, quoted in Aramaic, recorded in Greek, and it's God's Word. 
it's going through those languages. It, no one, when, when Matthew quoted an Old Testament passage in Greek, he didn't say, now, this is only God's word if it's, you know, back here in Hebrew. He said, no, this is what God said. God's, God's voice, it, it went through the languages. And I love that because I, I don't have an echo of God's word when I read this in English. I, I'm, I'm hearing his voice, and, and I'm grateful for that. And so some practical reasons, uh, bef- you know, people say, and I'm coming at this from a standpoint, what do you do when people ask you, why do we still use the King James? So I, I, when somebody asks me that question, I don't start with, let me tell you about Erasmus. Okay, that's not my first line of defense. Uh, I don't, and then let me walk you through Biza and let's talk about, hey, did you know about this guy in France? Uh, he wrote in the French Bible and he earned the nickname Olivetan because he, uh, that's not where I start. It's all interesting to me. I love history and it's interesting to me. That's not where I start. I start with some practical reasons for using a single translation in ministry. And I think some of this stems from the fact of a confusion I had as a 10 year old when my aunt's church used two different Bibles. First of all, corporate reading. Just a practical reason. Somebody says, why do we use the King? I said, you know what? Imagine if everybody in our church used a different Bible and pastor said, let's stand together and read. It's confusion. And so corporate reading is a, is a plus. The, the, in, in the Old Testament, New Testament, people read the Bible out loud. They read it together. Uh, there was responsive. Many of the Psalms were responsive in nature. Uh, the choir leader would take a verse. The choir would sing the next. Can you imagine if the choir was all singing different words? Imagine going to your church this Sunday and your choir is getting ready to sing and they all just give their own interpretation of the song. It'd be sort of hectic, wasn't it? And you'd go, what happened? And there would be some staff meetings on Monday morning, if not sooner. What in the world happened? The idea of corporate reading. And secondly, the idea of corporate Bible memory. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? So that I could win the memory versus-a-thon. No. No, thy word have I hid in my heart, so that I might not sin against God. There was a there was a purpose of hiding God's word in his heart, and we see this even in the New Testament. Jesus, when he's tempted, answers the wicked one with Scripture. And so there's there's this benefit of putting God's word into the hearts of children and into the hearts of adults, and and having everybody memorize the same thing is just once one pastor says, "Hey, finish this verse for me." It's great when everybody uses the same verse; they've memorized the same thing. So the idea of corporate reading, corporate memory, and corporate worship as we're doing church together, I think those are practical reasons to bring unity, if you will, into a church. And then what I want to look at in in our next uh, 10 minutes or so is just what considerations should be made for a translation. What are we looking for? What what, what is it that, that should be sort of the defining marks, if you will, in a translation? Okay, some of this comes from D.A. Waite, and some of it I've added as well. First of all, I start with the text. For simplistic statements, two primary texts. And I know that there, there's, uh, since 1982, you have Hodges and Farstad, and you have some of those who have created, quote unquote, a majority text. But for simplistic purposes, I'm just going to use two one that's in a majority, and one that's in a minority. Sometimes this majority text gets called Byzantine, sometimes it gets called Antiochian, sometimes it's called traditional text. That was the name Dean Bergen uh, enjoyed using, the traditional text. Not in the sense that he was tied to tradition, but in the sense that this was a text that was traditionally used by the churches. Some have called it the Textus Receptus, or the English equivalent of that, received text. I sort of like that term. And, and though Jesus isn't talking about uh, a text per se in his high priestly prayer, I love the words in John chapter 17. 
As Jesus is praying, verse number 8, he's talking to the Father. He says, I have given unto them, that first church, that early group of disciples, I have given unto them the words which you gave me. So the Father gave Jesus words. He gave them to the church, and they have received them. I love that statement. So here's the, the first church receiving, if you will, the words from the head of the church. It was a received text in the sense of the word from the very beginning. Well, what, what goes into it when we think about the majority text? Well, this is closer to the location of where the New Testament was written. When you look at where all these manuscript evidences are found, it's closer to the locations, and it's got a wide distribution. Uh, just in Greek alone, we're bumping 5,700 different manuscript evidences. When you start throwing in Latin and you start throwing in some of the ancient languages, you're quickly up to over 20,000 pieces of evidence. 20,000. And it's closer to the location. And this distribution has been seen through Bible-believing Christians and Bible-believing churches. I, I won't go through all of these, but you see uh, different people in different papyri. You see different Bible translations. All of these, what they have in common isn't that they're all English. What it has in common is they're all from the same. They all represent the same source. Uh, you see some English Bibles there with Tyndale, a French Bible, the Olivetan, Coverdale's English, Matthew's English, Tavner's English. Stevens has a Greek text, the Geneva Bible, the Reina Bible, which later became the Reina Valera, the Diodati, uh, which was the Italian Bible, uh, of course, the King James Bible. And then when you look at the, how missionaries left uh, the East Coast and started trying to reach the Native Americans, uh, you see in the 1780s and 18 through that 100-year period, many of the Native tribes receiving their own Bibles. And I'm grateful for that. One of the reasons I'm grateful for that my uh, great-granddad was full-blooded Cherokee. I'm grateful for that. Somebody was able to share the gospel with him uh, from a Bible that was in his language. And I'm grateful that my, his daughter, my grandmother, got her siblings ready to church, and, and they, they rode a church bus. I think it was a van. They called it a church route, but they, they went to Sunday school, and, and my grandmother got saved. And then my grandmother married a preacher, and my mom was raised in a preacher's home, and then my mom met my dad, and, and they got married. And I was raised in a preacher's home. But where did that start? What started because someone believed that a Native American should have the Word of God in their own language. And I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful for the history. So there's a majority text, and then in simplicity, there's a minority text. Granted, the words are biased, aren't they? Majority text, there's a bias to it, right? Minority text, there's a bias to it. I don't know that any of these can be unbiased, so I, that's why I give you all these listed names sometimes it's called. But uh, the truth be told, there isn't as much evidence, if you will, supporting modern Bibles. Sometimes it's called the critical text. Sometimes it's still called Westcott and Hoare text, even though they've been removed from that for 100-plus uh, years. Often it's called a Nestle Allen text. I think now it's in its 27th or 28th edition. Uh, sometimes Alexandrian text to locate it to a, a location. United Bible Society's UBS, I think they're in their fourth edition now, maybe fifth. What, what evidence do people consider when they're thinking about this text? Well, it's closer to the date. The majority text is closer to the location. They're, they're all centered around where the original letters would have been received. These manuscript pieces are closer to the date. They're older. Um, and this lives right, so why some people want to say the oldest is best. And many of them are found in Egypt, which has great climate for preserving manuscripts. So, so here's some facts. These aren't, these aren't disputable facts. These are just facts. One text is longer, and one text is shorter. It's just a fact. I'm not, I'm not giving interpretive why one is the other. I'm just saying that's just a fact. 
One is longer, one is shorter. I think it was Thomas Strauss who said that if you would take a Greek, uh, a, a TR versus a critical text Greek hardbound, if you will, and count the number of pages, the, the, the page difference is the equivalent of the book of Revelation. Sort of an interesting little uh, study he had done there. It's just shorter. It doesn't mean the whole book of Revelation is missing. It's just, it's just shorter. Second basic fact, one text is based on newer manuscripts, and one text is based on older manuscripts. It's just fact. How you interpret that fact, people will disagree, but that, that is the fact. Thirdly, one text is widely distributed. One text is relatively localized. One text has continually been used by the churches. One text has only been used in the last 150 years or so. So these are, the, these are facts. The debate isn't about the, the facts. The debate is how do you interpret those facts? So did one family add to the text, and that's why it's longer, or did the other family subtract from the text, and that's why it's shorter? You know? And is older always more accurate? And why are these old ones so well preserved? <laughs> does might make right? Okay, we have just more, that's it. Okay. Or does tradition trump textual criticism? And regardless of where somebody lands on that, there are certain presuppositions that drive it. There are just certain things we, we are hard to escape. We either believe that we start that process with a belief that the Word of God must be restored or that it has been preserved. And if we start with a presupposition that has been restored, it needs to be restored, then anytime I find an older manuscript that gets me closer back to time, closer to the date, that revolutionizes my approach to the Bible. But if the Word of God has been preserved, we don't look at how old a manuscript is. We just look at what has the church been using historically. And so these, these presuppositions, they, they do affect someone's position. Um, it is a Bible doctrine. It's not just a fact of history. And so since God has promised to preserve his word, it influences our position on which text we use. So I start with the text. Secondly, I look at the theology. Some people have made statements that new translations uh, deny the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't say it denies it. Others have made the statement, new translations delete the deity of Christ. I don't say it deletes it. Here's what I say. It dilutes it. Um, here's a brief comparison. Uh, I think these are in your notes. I think almost everything's in your notes. First John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's a familiar verse. Great verse for the Trinity. We probably have used that when somebody says, hey, is the Trinity in the Bible? Sure, let me show you 1 John 5, 7. Here's 1 John 5, 7 in the ESV, a modern Bible from a different text. There are three that testify, and that's the end. That, that is all of verse 7. Well, a substantial part is missing. That doesn't mean you can't prove the Trinity in the ESV. That's not what it's about. Uh, but it's diluted in that particular place. So in the comparison, you see a longer reading and you see a shorter reading. It's definitely a difference. It isn't that the ESV translators denied the Trinity. It's that they started with a presupposition that oldest is best, and this is the best text, and if the text doesn't have it, I can't produce it. I can only translate what's there, and so it doesn't have the longer ending. If one were using a Bible that was from a different text in the King James, you can't use this verse to prove the Trinity unless maybe they have put it in a footnote. But who wants to prove your doctrine from a footnote? It's not the best place to go. Okay, here's a second example. John 7, verse number 8. 
Jesus says, go you up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. He says, I, I'm not going up yet. That's a big word. And then later in the text, he goes. In the ESV, and this is just representative of the text. I mean, I could pick another translation that's going to be similar. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And then he goes. So I'm not going yet, and then I go. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. That's, that's okay. I mean, we, that little word yet is important. I'm not going. <laughs> Surprise, here I am. Well, now I, now I have a problem, okay? Uh, it's just a little verse, and there, there is a substantial difference here as far as the integrity of what Jesus says. Turn to this. I want you to see this one. Revelation chapter 14, verse number 6. This one's not in your notes. Revelation 8, 13 is, but I want you to see Revelation 14, 6. And often, really, honestly, I start with this verse uh, if I'm talking to somebody because it doesn't, it's not about the deity of Christ. They're not going to foam with the mouth about this verse. It's just something that can just show there's a difference, okay? Revelation 14, verse 6, and we're reading the King James. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So he says, I saw another angel. Um, if you were to look this up in the ESV or the New American Standard, what you would read is, and I saw another angel. <laughs> okay, so no big deal. That's not a difference. It's the same. So why would I show that verse? Well, if you've read Revelation 1 through 13 in the ESV, you haven't seen an angel flying in the midst of heaven. This is the first one. So it's not another one. It's like the only one. So where do you get that from? We'll turn to Revelation 8, 13, and this was the one that's in your notes. I beheld and heard an angel. Where was it at? It was flying through the midst of heaven. Same place. Saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So, Revelation 8, 13, John says, I, I saw an angel in the midst of heaven, Revelation 14, and I saw another angel in the same place. In the ESV, Revelation 8, 13, then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those that dwell on the earth, etc. Now, I don't have a problem with an eagle being able to speak. God, God made a donkey speak. That's not my issue. And if God wanted an eagle to say that, God could just as easily said that. My issue is that if I translate this word as eagle, when I come to Revelation 14, verse 6, there's a discrepancy. Just a little thing, but I'm just showing you one text is superior in its theology. One is, here's the deity of the Trinity, or the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is there. Here's one that's protecting the integrity of Jesus. Here's one that's even avoiding discrepancies with just a little word like eagle versus angel. Uh, so what's at stake? When I, why would I show a difference? Well, here's what's at stake. Inerrancy. Inerrancy. Uh, let me give you one more. Revel uh, Matthew chapter number 1, verse 7 through 10. And I know many times Christians want to get to the genealogical sections, speed read or skip it or just say, everybody begot somebody, next chapter, please, okay? And so we're not really always reading with the most discernment uh, in the genealogies. I get it uh, because it seems like a lot of names, and we don't even enjoy pronouncing half of them. Okay, but look at verse 7. Solomon begot Rehoboam, or Reboam. Reboam begot Abiah, or Abijah. 
and Abiah begat Asa. This is right from, you, you go back to the Old Testament, trace the genealogies of the kings of Judah. This is lock, stop, right, right, right in step with what the Old Testament teaches. But in your critical text Bibles, now all of a sudden Asa has become Asaph, the psalmist. Well, he wasn't in the genealogy, and most people aren't going to catch that because it's a difference in name. But again, it just shows even historically the text that under, underlines these King James is superior even in the genealogical details. In verse number 10, Hezekiah or Ezekiel begot Manassas, Manassas begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josias. In the critical text, he's now begot Amos, not Ammon, but Amos, the prophet. Uh, two different people in verse number 7 and two different people in verse number 10. There's this, the, again, the question of inerrancy is at the front. Well, does that mean that people who favor a Byzantine text don't have hard questions to answer? No, we, still, we have tough questions to answer as well. But here's what these four verses teach us. The Byzantine family can teach the Trinity in places where the Alexandrian family cannot. The Byzantine family can maintain the integrity of Christ's character easier than the Alexandrian family can. The Byzantine family avoids a discrepancy with the angels in Revelation that the Alexandrian family has to answer. The Byzantine family is historically accurate with Christ's genealogy, where the Alexandrian family is not. So I'm looking at the text. I'm looking at the theology. Thirdly, I'm looking at the technique. A couple of technical terms in your notes. Formal equivalency. Uh, where the emphasis is on words. We're looking at trying to, as much as possible, take this word and this original language to the word in the receptor language and it's formal equivalency. Secondly is dynamic equivalency. Now we're looking at the thoughts and trying to put those thoughts into the new language. I think you can understand very quickly that one is more interpretive than the other. If you're translating thoughts rather than words, You've just stepped into the role of the priesthood of the believer, and you've removed that responsibility for our own responsibility to, to rightly divide the word of truth, and you've interpreted it for them. And who knows if your interpretation is right? Who knows what, what biases have gone into your interpretation? So dynamic equivalency, if God inspired the words and God preserved the words, and I want the words to be translated. To see this principle in action, we can compare the King James with the message. If you've ever read the message, you understand that it's sort of out there. So this is Romans 12.1. I won't even read this in the King James because it's so familiar. So just think in your mind right now, Romans 12.1. We've all heard it our entire life, and I want you to think about what I'm about to read and say that just doesn't sound like Romans 12 verse 1 that I know. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering, embracing what God does for you as the best thing you can do for him. So what text is that from? It's... <laughs> It's not even related to the text. It's as dynamic as you can get. I've taken the, the far extreme here so you can sort of see the differences between the two approaches. Okay, here's another one. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Um, it's just, it's interpretation. Here's my favorite though. Zechariah 13, verse 6, and the King James, they, one shall say to him, What are these wounds in thine hands? He shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. What a great prophetic verse, right? <laughs> You're reading ahead, aren't you? <laughs> and if someone says, and so where did you get that black eye? They'll say, I ran into a door at a friend's house. <laughs> it's just that's somebody's interpretation. That is, that is dynamic to the core. 
When a translation leads toward dynamic equivalency, they're not paying attention to the words, they're interpreting thoughts, and that's not just translation, that's interpretation. So note, it's possible to have the right text and use the wrong technique. I believe Luther did this in his Psalms. Luther, when he was translating the Bible into German, he thought it would be a great idea to have the Psalms rhyme in German. So he took some liberties with the text to translate thoughts, and he used, he used a technique I would not agree with. It's possible to have the right text, use the wrong technique. It's just as possible to have the wrong text and use the right technique. Examples of that would be the New American and the ESV. They, they use the right technique. It's just a different text. So text, theology, technique, fourthly, translators. The King James translators weren't perfect men. If you look hard enough, you'll find skeletons. I'm sure of it. They're not perfect men. And they were products of their time, and they, they dealt with some of the things that their culture dealt with. But what I would say is they were gifted men who held to an orthodox view of Christianity. And I just want to know, uh, is this a one-man translation? Or I'm thankful for the fact of all the checks and balances that the King James translators set up with the Westminster and the Oxford and the Cambridge. And then the different, here, you read mine, I'll read yours. And all of that before it ever got to publication, That's, it took so long. They didn't even get permission until 1604, so it's seven years later before it's actually translated because of the, the, the integrity they wanted to have with the translation. So I look at the translators. It's not the major thing for me, but I am curious. There's new Bibles out today uh, that uh, say that they're from the same text, and, and I, I, I like to read. I read a lot. When I don't recognize any of the names at all, not even one of them in any, anything I've ever seen, it just raises a question for me. I don't, I don't know who these people are. So I look at the translators, and then fifthly, I look at the time, and admittedly, this is subjective, <laughs> but it is a factor that I look at. The King James Bible has stood the test of time. I don't update my hymns to modern English every 40 to 50 years. I still teach my children to sing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, and they understand what it means. We, we, I haven't updated that song. And I'm not updating my Bible every 40, 50 years, every time a new translation comes out. There's something about, listen, a generational connection I enjoy. Uh, I'm using a Bible uh, that has been handed down to me. So when I, I come to a Bible that maybe passes the text test, and it passes the theology test, and it passes the technique test, and it passes the translator's test, then I consider the time test. As an example, the New King James has been around for about 35 years, and it doesn't seem to be gathering much traction. Other TR Bibles in the history of America have been, I mean, the Americans, there was a group of Baptists in the Americas who said, we need a Baptist translation. We don't want the word Baptist. We want the word immerse in our Bible. And, and they used the same text, and they tried to just change the words, but it fizzled. I'm sure they had good intentions, but it, it, it didn't gain traction. I look at the time test. I also look at the tradition test. By tradition, I don't mean in the sense of, um, you know, I just, I'm just going to use this because everybody uses it, but I'm talking about that generational connection. To think that this morning as I read in my Bible that my dad has read those same words and my granddad preached from those same words and my great-granddad preached from those same words, that's different than saying, uh, you know, a thousand years ago. No, this is now it's personal. There, there's a connection, and my children when they read their Bible this morning, we're reading the same Bible that 
there's a generational connection. Just like the hymns connect one generation to the next, the Bible connects us as well. That's what I mean by a tradition. So God's promised to preserve his word. Since most of us, we don't read Hebrew or Greek, we do need a translation. On the negative side, it's dangerous to use a translation that's historically inaccurate, Christologically weak. On the positive side, it's a strength to want to make sure God's word is understandable. So what do we do when we come to a translation? We have to determine who we're going to trust. Friends, scholars, pastors, radio personalities. It's a big question. I have to find a translation that I trust. And I'm trusting a translator at that point. Which translator do I trust and what do I look for? And that's where I come down to those texts. Is it a text that the church has endorsed? I look at the theology. Is it theologically accurate? Is it Christologically accurate? Is it historically accurate? Is it non-contradicting? I look at the technique. I look at the translators. I look at the time. I consider tradition. That's an overview of some things. Hopefully that will be a help to you. We hope this episode has been helpful to you and that you'll subscribe to our podcast. You can connect with Standing Together on Twitter and Facebook, where we hope you will take a moment to share this podcast with your friends and followers. And remember, we'd love to see you at the next Standing Together Ministry Summit on April 1st and 2nd in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. For more information, visit us at stsummit.com. That's stsummit.com. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.